is turn your book to your your Bible to the book of Nehemiah. We're going to look at chapter 5, verse 1 through 13. Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1 through 13. I'm going to read verses 6 through 8. If you want to stand for the reading of God's word, please stand. Nehemiah 5, verse 6 through 8. I've entitled this message, Nehemiah leads the people. He leads the people. Look at verse 6 through 8 with me in Nehemiah 5. And I became very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. After serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them, Each of you is exacting or charging interest for his brother. So I called a great assembly against them. And I said to them, According to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now, indeed, will you even sell your brethren, or should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. Let's pray. Dear me, Father, we, we come to you, and we just uh, want to thank you that we have a place to come to worship you together. Be with those that are traveling tonight. Be with those that are home tonight. Father, love on them and give them journey mercies that they're traveling. And help us as we leave here to uh, drive safely and get home safely. But, Father, we just thank you for this opportunity to come and let iron sharpen iron and to um, look into your word together and sing beautiful songs, Father, of your greatness, your goodness. And uh, earlier, just in a meeting, we were laughing and getting to know each other better and, and just putting things in order to know what we're all up to. So we thank you for that, Father, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Nehemiah leads the people. Uh, when I read the text, you know, it talked about Nehemiah being angry, and you're like, what would he be angry about? Of course, you probably looked ahead anyways, but some of the other rulers in that day when they were rebuilding the wall, some of the rulers that probably, when we were in chapter 3, that said they had no hand in building everything, they were, they were loaning money, you know, because while you were working, you might need grain, you not, might need to pay rent, you might need to pay taxes to the king, and they were loaning out money, but they were charging heavy interest to their own brothers. And according to the text that we just read tonight, verse 6 to 8, Nehemiah used that analogy. He says, so we paid a lot of money to get our brothers out of slavery while we're in exile, and then you basically just put your brothers right back into slavery, and you're using them. And so Nehemiah's going to, he's a little angry, and, but you know the good thing is, he leads the people through this. He doesn't just hear the outcry and be upset. He has a solution. Uh, it's a biblical solution. It's a biblical pattern. And, and before we're done, we'll see it's an eternal pattern of what God has already done for us through Jesus Christ. And so as we think about this, this moment in the history of Israel, while they're rebuilding the walls, shoring up the walls, and Rebuilding Jerusalem so they can worship God once again as the central hub of worshiping God in the temple and Nehemiah leading. We've seen over the last four chapters, they have all kinds of uh, outside opposition. You know, Sam Ballot, Tobiah, the ones that would uh, say different things and threaten different things. And by this time, you know, they're working with one hand and got a weapon in the other. And some of them are sleeping while you're working and watching and everything. Well, what we see here 
is now some things internally are happening, have been happening for quite some time. And now that Nehemiah is aware of it, he addresses it. And as he addresses it, he does it not because he's just mad, because it says he took much thought in how he would respond to that, but he, but he addresses it because he cares about God's people. He cares about God's work. And, and so Nehemiah has a heart for God's people. He has a heart for the glory of God. And here in this solution, as he leads them through this internal problem, um, what's interesting, I always think it's interesting, I, I think back of some pastorates that I've had in the past where I've had to step up and maybe give correction, give direction. It's just always real interesting when someone's really guilty, like these people are guilty of doing something that they shouldn't be doing to God's people. If you remember there in the text, the moment he corrected them, they just got silent. And I used to tell Karen, she said, well, how did that meeting go? You know, they were trying to, and I would have to biblically correct them. And I said, well, it was like crickets in the background. Once I gave them the Bible verse, it was crickets in the background. And I've always noticed that even in my own life, I can remember being a kid, and trust me, I was a normal kid. I got in a lot of trouble, but once mom and dad laid down the law, and this is right and that is wrong, I grew up where you didn't say, but mama, but dad, it was just silence. I knew I was guilty, and I took my whooping or whatever punishment it was, just silence. And I think that's what's happening to these rulers that have been, for lack of words, abusing usury to the God's people. When Nehemiah not only catches them with their hand in the till, so to speak, of God's people, and he gives them that analogy. We've already bought these people out of exile slavery to bring them here to build, and now you're going to put them back in slavery? Because that's what had happened. People were in bondage now to their own brethren. So Nehemiah is going to lead this people. In verse 1 through 5, in this situation, in verse 1 through 5, Nehemiah hears the confirmed complaint. In other words, it's not just one complaint. He, he gets it confirmed by many people speaking. Nehemiah hears the, confer, the confirmed complaint. Look at verse 1 through 5 of Nehemiah 5. And there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against the Jewish brethren. For there were those who said, We are sons... Our daughters, as many, are many. Therefore, let us grain that we may eat and live. In other words, we went to some people and said, hey, we got to eat. I got a wife, I got a wife, got a daughter, I got a son, I need to eat. We, we came to these people. Then in verse 3, there was also some who weren't just needing food. There were also some who said, we have mortgaged our lands and vineyards. You know, got into debt that way. And houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. There's a famine going on. So some borrowed money so they could eat. Other ones mortgaged their properties to eat. Verse 4, there were also those who said, we have borrowed money from the, for the king's tax. In other words, they got to pay tax to the king. So they borrowed money on our lands and vineyards. They put them in hawk. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren. In other words, They've just kind of taken us over, our brethren, our children as their children. 
And indeed, we are, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. What? To our own brothers and sisters. And it says, some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them. We can't set them free. For other men have our lands and our vineyards. They, they've basically lost everything for the work of God due to their brothers, the brethren, abusing the fact or exploiting their need. So Nehemiah hears the confirmed complaint. In other words, there's one set of people just borrowed money to get food. Other people put their lands up for, for hawk to have food. Some of us have, have bartered and traded with our children, and now we'll, we'll never be able to redeem that. We'll never get it back. We're enslaved. Many had a complaint. And so Nehemiah hears that. He hears their cry during a desperate time because not only are they working with one weapon in the hand, a tool in the other hand, watching this, watching that, but they're starving to death because there is a famine going on in the land. So if they're working with one, one weapon in one hand and a tool in the other hand, they can't even go out and farm to create crops or grain or anything. They have to go purchase it. And if they're busy doing that all the time and watching the tower and, and for all the safety they need from the outside problems, guess what? They've got to borrow. And what was happening, it's not that so much that they were borrowing from their brothers, but their brothers were taking advantage of that borrowing and charging extra interest on top of that. I remember being a brand-new Christian one day, and I'd, I'd moved out. And this particular place I was moving out to, I think I needed around $100, you know, to get your electrical, your water, and your gas deposit, right? I needed $100 for all three of those deposits. I had enough money to put down the apartment and, of course, the next month's rent, but I needed that to get that in my name. And I went to my friend Bruce, who was working up at Tasty Freeze still, and I went up there and got me a burger, and I said, hey, Bruce, you know, I, I can move out, but i got to have $100 for all these three deposits. Otherwise, I've got everything else everything else. I've even got a next month's rent, and you know, I'm trying to make sure I save. And uh, so me and him went out into the lobby there, and I'm eating my burger, eating my, eating my tasty, tasty burger, whatever, tasty freeze burger. And he said, Steve, he said, I've got a $100 bill here, but this is the deal. He said, I'm going to loan you $100, and you can pay me back $10 a week for 10 weeks, however you want to do it, but, but just pay me back. Are you going to pay me back? I said, yes, I'll pay you back every penny. I said, I just need this so I can move out because the apartment was ready, apartment was available, and of course you know how apartments are. If, if you don't have that $100 for everything else, then you may lose the apartment. So he loaned me $100 with the agreement that I would pay him back $100. He wasn't going to charge me any interest. Now, I moved out that next weekend, put the deposit down on the apartment plus for the, all the hookups and everything, but that particular week, we worked some overtime. I mean, we were working 12, 16-hour days. So I thought, hey, I'm going to get a pay, big paycheck here in a little bit. I only have extra money in my pocket, but I can pay my friend back. So within a week, I paid him back $100. And I, and I remembered that to this day. He didn't charge me any interest, but he did make the comment, now, if you don't pay me back, I'll never loan you again. I said, okay. So I paid him back in a couple of weeks because of overtime. Well... About two months later, I'm dating a particular individual, and I'm over at her mom and dad's house, and her dad was a salesman at like, 
you know, the old Sears or something like that. He sold TVs and washers and dryers, you know, down there in the basement area of the old Sears. But his job was commission only. And they were hurting. And I, I was over at her house. We were having supper. And, of course, he, the dad didn't bring it up. The mom didn't bring it up. Well, later on, me and the, the, the girl I was dating was out on the front porch just looking at the stars, you know, and everything. And she said, um, Mom and Dad are not going to be able to pay, I don't know, whether it was water or whatever, some kind of utilities. And I said, well, and I'm thinking about how my friend loaned me money, and I paid him back. I said, well, how much do they need? She said, well, they need about $200 uh, to pay the electric. Well, I said, okay. I said, I'll be right back. And it was, it, was, it was a day where the bank was still open, so I went down to the bank and took out $200 cash, came back, and I said, here you go. She goes, what's up? I said, well, you all pay your electric, pay your heat and air or whatever. Well, you don't have to do that. That's not why I told you. I said, I know, I know. So I went to her dad and told him, I said, look, a friend loaned me $100. If you'll pay me back, whenever you pay me back, that's fine. He said, well, how much owe you? I said, well, you'll just owe me 200 Well, I didn't date that girl about two weeks later. We didn't date anymore. I never saw the $200. That would have been 1984. Never saw the $200. In the meantime, I get married in 1986, right? Well, by 1988, I had just gotten laid off at, at a place. And so I'm driving through town there in Owasso. In the meantime, I didn't know it, but the dad had passed away. The mom was still alive. Of course, the girl was already married. And I happened to run into that mother of the girl I dated at the grocery store because I was getting groceries and I told her how I'd gotten laid off and everything. She goes, oh, well, bless your heart. and Oh, you're married now and you got two kids. Oh, yes, ma'am, yeah, yeah. And you know what she did? She goes, she goes, are you going to be at the store very much longer? I said, well, yeah, I got to buy groceries. She goes, well, make sure you don't leave the store. And she left. I thought, that's weird. You know what she did? Because she was in a good spot now. She came back. She goes, here's the $200 we promised to pay you back. The point of that whole story is is not the exchange of money, but my friend never decided to charge me interest. He just wanted to be paid back, otherwise he wouldn't loan me again, and I just returned the same favor. And, you know, I just, I guess I broke that $200 off for a long time ago, but it came back. It didn't come back with interest. I didn't ask for interest. Well, these people are in a famine. They're in desperate times. And they're being exposed to devious practices. It's one thing for a brother to loan someone something, right? But during that desperate time, they not only said, hey, you've got to pay us back, but you've got to pay us back plus interest. Well, what kind of Christianity is that? And so Nehemiah hears their confirmed complaint because there were several different levels of people that were borrowing either against their homes, their kids, or just barn in general, and they were in a tight spot. They had a complaint. I wrote this down in my note. A bondage people, a bondaged people have no hope. When you're in bondage to something or in bondage to debt, what kind of hope do you have? I remember when Karen and I uh, bought the house that we're in now. We just paid it off a couple of years ago. Thank the Lord for that. And we had to finagle a few things to do that. But we would always sit, well, how many more years we got? What year? You know, what year? Because the kids were still growing. All of our kids are about six or seven years apart. I'm like, ah, you know. And it just, but there was that, there was always that little bondage. Not that we were desperate of losing the house, but there was always that little bondage. And 
And the day that she said, okay, it's paid off. We needed some stuff to do to the house, a roof and different things. But I thought, wow, it's paid off. We have an asset now. If we ever got in a tight spot, we'd have something we could bargain with, something that we could use. But a people that are in bondage like these people, especially during lean times, these people were complaining not so much because of what the brethren was doing, but because of what they were doing. It was like insult to injury during a time of famine, and they had no hope. We'll never get our kids back. We'll never get our lands back. And you know, it's not just important to the Jewish people having land and property. How many of y'all own something? A car, land, yeah? Pretty proud when it gets paid off, right? Even if, even if the car's older, hey, it's paid off. That's the greatest option, right? No payments, you know? And so these people were being, going from one bondage of being exiled and paid for to be set free to come here to rebuild, and now they were just going into another bondage. I still remember when we did buy the house in Inola, we had sold our house in Owasso that we only had maybe five more years to pay off in 1999. We, it would have been paid off by ni- ni- 2004, and we had two kids. That would have been pretty cool, a three-bedroom, two-car garage, bath and a half. We'd have had it paid off at 2004, but in 1999, we sold it with some profit so that we could move to Kentucky, but the way that church worked is I had to pay for the moving van everything to get there, land in their parsonage. It lasted 14 months, so then we had to pay for this move to get back to Owasso to a rent house. And then when I got a church in Dinella, we had to pay for that move to get into the parsonage there. And then when we knew things weren't working there, we had to pay for that move to get into the house we're in. But to get in the house we were in, we had to borrow money for the down payment so that we could make payments on the loan. All those moves Two different churches, five different houses, four different schools really took a lot out of our pocket. And it, 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 there was not, just, not only just the fact that we got another 30 years from this house, but we're in a tight spot. If I lost my job, if she lost her job, it was always scary. It just seemed like there was just no hope in that area. I mean, we had hope in our home, but, you know, could we lose the home? There's a hope. And that's where these people are. In their bondage, they just have no hope. They were desperate, and they were being exposed to devious practices by their own brethren. So Nehemiah hears the confirmed complaint. Then in verse 6 through 8, Nehemiah addresses the great offense. In other words, he didn't just hear what's going on. He addresses the great offense. He addresses what's happening. Look at verse 6 through 8. We read it earlier. And it says there in Nehemiah 5, verse 68, And I became very angry when I heard their outcry of these words. After serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and the rulers. If you remember, over in chapter 3, when we were kind of going through all those different names, what each one of them were doing, there was a verse in there that said all the nobles, they weren't putting their hands to the plow. Probably because they had all they needed. They probably had their housing. Well, let's let... Just let the commoners, you know, do the work. After serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them, Each of you is exacting usury or charging interest from his brother. 
So, I, so he says, so I called a great assembly against them. And I said to them, according to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations, that is to the Gentiles, you know, during this exile. Now indeed, will you even sell your brethren, you know, to one another? Or should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. As I said, when I was a kid, when I got caught, I knew I was guilty. I wasn't the kind of kid that wanted to say, but mama, but daddy, I just, okay. And I took my punishment. I remember any time I was ever pulled over for something, whether it was just peeling out in the street, speeding, those other things I mentioned this morning, when I got pulled over or when the police officer, when the authorities showed up, I didn't live in a culture like today, you know, resist the rest. It's yes, sir, no, sir, whatever, I'm guilty. And that's kind of what they did. They, they owned up to it. They just got real silent. They realized they'd been caught. They knew they were guilty beyond any suspicion because Nehemiah addresses this great offense. The words of the outcry moved Nehemiah to a high emotion. It says he got angry. Now the Bible says be angry but sin not. So there's nothing wrong with him being angry but then he took time to think about how he was going to, I guess, take that energy and address it, right? And so Nehemiah was moved by their words to a high emotion and their words uh, moved Nehemiah to a clear confrontation because the first thing he did is he didn't hang out the ruler's dirty laundry out in front of everybody. He went to the ruler's and told them what they'd done. And then once he made them accountable for what they'd done, then he called an assembly of everybody and gave that illustration. He didn't, he said, we bought our brothers out of slavery from all the Gentile nations and now you want to put them in slavery in our own nation? He brought the whole assembly to bring that analogy out to make all of them realize that these people may be guilty of doing that, but none of us need to be guilty of that. All of us need to understand we were once in bondage. Now we've been set free. Let's take care of one another. You know, earlier there in chapter 4, he talked about how when you're holding that weapon and you're holding your tool, he says, if you've got to take your weapon, you tell yourself, this is for my brother. This is for my sister. This is for my wife. This is for my husband. Fight for one another. And he's already kind of had that rally cry. Now he's telling them on a practical basis, on the internal level, work together. Take care of one another. So on one hand, you think about it. So on one hand, you're willing to build the wall with them and protect them with a weapon from the enemy, but yet you're willing to use them on the inside. What does that say about people? You know what that says? That says that human behavior is pretty unpredictable. Because on one hand... Of course, these were the rulers that we saw in chapter 3 that weren't doing nothing. They were just letting the commoners do all the work. Maybe they didn't care. Maybe they thought they were something. But he addressed the great offense. And when he corrected the people, they had no answer. Why? Just like me as a kid. I didn't have an answer because I was guilty of sin. 
My grandmother caught me and my cousin Rick. We would go up there for about five or six summers in a row. We would spend two weeks at a time. Hot July in Marshfield, Missouri. They had 80 acres. Aunt Bonna had 120 acres. We had 200 acres we could roam on. There was a James River down below the bluff. It was about from here to the back wall wide, about three or four feet deep. So a spring-fed river It was nice to play in. Behind this bluff was a spring-fed creek. And me and, Joe, me and my cousin Rick had plenty to do. We had plenty to do because uh, not only for just fun, but Grandma would give us responsibilities, Grandpa would give us responsibilities, do our chores, then we'd go out and have fun. But what me and Rick chose to do is after our chores, we got into trouble. We got into trouble because there was gravel roads all the way from Grandma's house. Well, we might wander down that gravel road for about four or five miles away from the house. There was no phone. We didn't have a watch. You say, well, how did she know what you were doing? They had a party line. And Grandma would watch what row we would take at the, end of the, at the end of the driveway. If we went off this way, she knew who was down there. And after a while, she'd call Miss Smith or Aunt Bonna. Yep, saw him down the road. Saw him down the road. So Grandma kind of had to pull in the reins. And she said, look, you can go places, but it's got to be on Vonna's land, our land, or as far as here and as far as there, because I think one day, I don't know how many miles we walked. We just had our BB gun, our lasso rope. You know, we, we thought we were Lewis and Clark. I don't know where we went. All I remember is we lost track of time, and all I remember is my grandpa gets off work at the factory on time. You know, he clocks out. He gets home. She goes, I don't know where they're at. And he just started driving down the road. He found us maybe five, ten miles down the road. Crazy kids. We know nothing about copperheads or anything, but listen. When she sat us down that night and explained to us the dangers out there, I mean, what I didn't know until then, <clears throat> just 10 miles away from where Grandma and Grandpa lived was a prison called Fordland in Fordland, Missouri. I didn't know there was a prison there, kind of a midway. You know, they escape all the time. And she said, I, she said, of course, she scared us to death. <clears throat> she made up some stories if they would, some guy would get out and do something to us. So we didn't roam very much further. But these people, when they got caught, just like me and my cousin, we just got silent. We knew we were guilty. And so we owned up to it. <clears throat> and we complied. We complied. But Nehemiah was moved. And in that moving he gave clear confrontation. <clears throat> the people that were indebted were slaved. They were enslaved by debt. The correction silenced the people. Then verse 9 through 12, Nehemiah not only hears the confirmed complaint, addresses the great offense, <clears throat> Nehemiah solves the oppression problem. He gives a solution. Look at verse 9 through 12. Then I said, in their silence, then I said, what you are doing is not good. No, it's, it's not a good practice. Should you not walk in the fear of God? In other words, shouldn't you fear God enough that you wouldn't do this? Because of the reproach of the nations. In other words, the nations are already reproaching us. The enemy is already on our heels, Sambal and Tobiah. I also, with my brethren and my servants, am lending them money. In other words, I've been lending them money for grain, 
Please let us stop this usury, this interest. Restore now to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses, and a hundredth of the money that is that they borrowed, and the grain, the new wine and oil that you have charged them. In other words, you've made some interest. Well, you're not going to give them back everything that they borrowed against, but you're going to give them a hundredth back of everything that they, they get back, that they borrowed. So they said, we will restore it and, and we'll require nothing from them. In other words, we're just going to make sure they get fed. We will do as you say. Then I called the priests and required an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. Because remember, it was those leaders that were abusing uh, the opportunity. Nehemiah solves the oppression problem. He, by solving it, he says, stop the practice of interest charging and stop enslaving your own people. Start the practice of forgiving the debt and restoring your people. That was his solution. Stop doing what you're doing. It's enough. This is not good. Don't you fear God enough not to be doing this to your own people, knowing that we're approached to every nation anyways, and therefore the other nations could say, see there? See there? They, they treat their own that way. He says, don't you understand that? And therefore, I need you to start practicing forgiving of debt, restoring people, taking care of one another. Well, a bondage people have no hope. The corrected people had no answer other than yes, right? But a humble people that are willing to practice forgiveness of debt, willing to restore, a humble people have no conflict. Because listen, there was not only the fear and hopelessness of those that had borrowed that they'll never get their things or their people back, but it caused them to be at conflict with what? Leadership. And therefore there was a conflict. How they're going to accomplish rebuilding the walls if there's conflict amongst the internal. It's one thing to say, look, we need to be careful because Sam Ballot and Tobias on the outside, they're after us. But it's another thing to be afraid of you or you be afraid of her because you're at conflict. And they can't work that way. So he says, if you'll be a humble people... Stop doing what you're doing and restore and forgive debt. We'll not have a conflict here. We may still have an outside conflict because that's, that's normal, right? To have the outside conflict. But why should we have an internal conflict? Why should we force ourselves to have one when we don't have to have one? Then in verse 13, last but not least, Nehemiah sets the universal standard. He sets the universal standard. In other words, this is the standard he wants us to live by. Look at verse 13. They've said they're going to do it. He's made the priests take an oath to promise. And then he says this, to set a universal standard. Then I shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out each man from his house 
and from his property who does not perform this promise. In other words, who does not take care of his brother but takes advantage of him. May that happen to him. Even thus, may he be shaken out and emptied. And all this simply said, Amen. And praise the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. How does he set a universal standard? Well, he basically says this. He says, this is a universal standard. A man must be judged by how he judges. In other words, if I'm going to loan you money and charge you interest, I'll be judged off that same standard. Well, then I'm going to lose what I lose. If I'm going to loan you money to make you lose, then he says, may God cause you to lose all that you have. A man will be judged by how he's judging others. And a man must be merciful, therefore receive mercy. On the other hand, if you do as I'm telling you, show forgiveness, show setting free, show mercy, then that's what will come to you. Otherwise, you're going to be shook into pieces. Because by the way you're behaving, you're going to be treated by God the same way. When a people have justice... For lack of words, and I know in our culture, a lot of people scream out for justice. And I think sometimes it's more about revenge or they want more than what our justice system has probably um, administered to execute any kind of judgment. They just want more. I get it. But when justice is really served, there's no longer chaos. What do you mean by that, Brother Steve? Well... We are a society of laws and order. And if we're not enforcing laws, guess what? There's chaos. That's why we have laws here in America, right? To create some semblance of order. Now, we know no system's perfect. You know, no governmental system. I don't care if it's an American system, a Russian system, a, a Zimbabwe system. No system's perfect. But if a system has a set of laws at least where the laws are applied, there'll be order, not chaos. And what he's saying in this universal standard, he says, look, this will be the law. If you practice usury where people lose everything, the law is God's going to do the same to you. However, though, the universal law is if you'll show forgiveness, if you'll show mercy, God will make sure you have mercy too. So where there's law and order, there's not chaos. But where they had created this original environment, it was creating hopelessness. It was creating chaos. It was creating conflict amongst the people within themselves, let alone Sam Ballot and Tobiah outside. So a justice people or a just people have no chaos. A humble people have no conflict. A corrected people stand silent, stand guilty. But a bondage people never, ever have peace or hope. They're always in bondage. Well, we call this Nehemiah leads the people. Nehemiah leads the people to an internal resolution by an eternal pattern. What we see here that we're going to bring up is a picture of the gospel in this story right here. 
What's the pattern? We once, according to Ephesians 2, verse 1 through 10, we once were in bondage to sin's guilt, sin's control, with no way to pay off our sin guilt. But yet God sent his son, Jesus Christ, with passion. And he died paying our debt. And he's death, and he overcame death, hell, and the grave to give us eternal forgiveness and life. He showed mercy. When Nehemiah's people were complaining, they were in bondage. Nehemiah moved with passion and said, we're going to have a solution for that. Just like God did when he sent his son. Then he sat down and Jesus did the work to solve the problem. And the universal rule of what? Of the gospel is, you believe in my son, you have everlasting life. You don't believe what? You perish. You'll be shaken up. You'll be shaken out. It's that same eternal pattern. We once were in bondage. No hope. No peace. But yet God with passion sent his son to die at the passion of the cross. Raising from the dead. And if we turn to him, we don't receive condemnation. We're already in it. He shows us mercy and sets us free from the bondage of sin so that we can live with no chaos between us and God. We can live with no conflict between us and God. We don't stand before God silent, guilty. Instead, we have dialogue with God because we've been reconciled to God. We see his internal resolution through that eternal pattern. Nehemiah is just practicing gospel principles. Nobody should be allowed to stay in bondage. Do something about it. Show mercy. If tomorrow, uh, I picked up my paycheck earlier tonight. It was, it's in this envelope, right? Well, let's say tomorrow, as I'm going to Wee Street down here in Sand Springs, <clears throat> I just have a wild hair that says, you know what? I'm going to rob the Wee Street. I'm just going to rob the credit union. And I don't know, I rob them, and of course I get arrested. Your pastor gets arrested. And three months later, I'm standing in federal court because that'd be a federal law broken, right? I mean, I'm, I'm going to the big pen. But as I'm standing there before the federal judge three months later to get, get things, and the judge says, Steve Holstein, on February whatever Monday, did you walk into that bank at 10 in the morning and proceed to rob that credit union? Yes, Your Honor, I did. I'm guilty. But all of a sudden, Governor Stitch shows up at the court. And he says, Your Honor, we know Steve's guilty, but I'm going to pardon him. That way he won't be punished. But I'd still be guilty of robbing the bank, right? I wouldn't get punished. I got a pardon from the governor, but I'm still guilty. Jesus did not pardon us from our sins because then we'd still be guilty. You know what he did? He didn't pardon us. He showed mercy. He gave us what we don't deserve. If at that court the governor says, I'm not pardoning Steve to, so he won't get punished, he's still guilty. If he made some kind of proclamation, some kind of law that just cleansed me from being guilty, that's what Jesus did. He showed mercy. We all were guilty, just like 
these people were in bondage to their decisions and people were using them, they set them free by showing what? Mercy. They forgave the debt. Sometimes we forget we forget that forgiving, when you say I forgive you, means you ain't going to pull it back up. I'm not saying forgive and forget because listen, if you're a woman being abused by your husband uh, and you leave him for whatever reason, probably a good reason you're leaving him, I'm not saying that you should forget anything that he's done because you wouldn't want anybody else to do that to you again. Now, you may need to learn how to forgive him, but don't ever forget what he did because, listen, if you forget what he did, you'll just get beat again, right? So there is no forgive and forget. Forgiveness is a choice that we make to say, I forgive you. Trust is something that's built in a relationship. I had a lady in Kentucky tell me that before. She said, Pastor said, forgive and forget. I said, no, ma'am, don't you forget what these last three husbands ever did to you. I said, don't you ever forget it. I said, because it was, it was wrong. And I don't want you to forget it because I don't want you to get in the same situation. Now, you may have to learn how to forgive these guys, but trust is totally different than forgiveness. Jesus showed us mercy. He didn't pardon us. He cleansed us and gave us what we didn't deserve. Let's pray. Dearly Father, we come to you tonight. And Father, we think of this little story where some of God's people had a great need during a great and desperate time. And instead of their brothers coming alongside of them, saying, what can I do? How can I help? They took advantage of the fact that they could help and took advantage of their brothers and their sisters. The good news is, Father, the people took it for a while and thank God they came to their leadership and says, we, we can't do this anymore. It's wrong. And then thank God the, the leadership, out of wisdom and passion, sought to solve the problem, saw what was the right way to do things, knowing that we fear God. And we're even more thankful, Father, that those that were using God's people repented of their sin. Therefore, God's people were free. Were free to work for you. Free to work together. Free without conflict. Free without chaos. They were free to live for you. Help us to be the same kind of people, Father, because Jesus has set us free from the bondage of sin, the guilt of sin. And Father, someday, Father, in my glorification, I'll be saved from the presence of sin. Until then, Father, I, I struggle with my flesh and my mind. I'm, I'm being sanctified. I'm being matured, being grown and tested and tried to trust you. And Father, someday we'll be totally set free. Until then, Father, help us to remember the very mercy that you showed us when we were in bondage that we didn't deserve, but by your grace you revealed it to us, you, you placed it upon us. So, Father, we thank you that you set us free. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.